Please take your Bibles and turn to Genesis chapter 12. Genesis 12, verses 10 through 20. And go ahead and leave them open. Uh, as we refer to the verses, it'll help ground these things in your, in your heart and mind um, as we reference the verses. Genesis 12, verses 10 through 20. Now there was a famine in the land, so Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there, for the famine was severe in the land. When he was about to enter Egypt, he said to Sarai, his wife, I know that you are a woman, beautiful in appearance. And when the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife. Then they will kill me, but they will let you live. Say you are my sister, that it may go well with me because of you, and that my life may be spared for your sake. When Abram entered Egypt, the Egyptians saw that the woman was very beautiful. And when the princes of Pharaoh saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh. And the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. And for her sake, he dealt well with Abram. And he had sheep, oxen, male donkeys, male servants, female servants, female donkeys, and camels. But the Lord afflicted Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. So Pharaoh called Abram and said, What is this you have done to me? Why did you not tell me that she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister so that I took her for my wife? Now then, here is your wife. Take her and go. And Pharaoh gave men orders concerning him. And they sent him away with his wife and all that he had. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we are yours even when we fail you. We don't want to fail you. And we pray that we would never settle into a pattern of failure. But when we do fail, please, as quickly as possible, Bring us back to see the wondrous eternal love that you have for us in the gospel of your Son, our Lord Jesus, that we may take this word, this lesson from this passage, and that in the mystery of your Spirit's work in the middle of your providence in our lives, that we would be more conformed to the image of your Son. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. It's an old Christian hymn. We don't sing it. I wish we did. It's by William Cooper. We sang some of his songs, sang a couple weeks ago, God Moves in a Mysterious Way. William Cooper was um, saddled with depression a good portion of his adult life. He was taken care of by another great hymn writer and great preacher, uh, John Newton, of whom we get Amazing Grace from. John Newton looked after him with great care, but if you think about Cooper, uh, his name is spelled like Cowper, but everybody says Cooper. I don't know why, but that's the way it is. Um, but if you uh, think about his life in this darkness, much of the time 
his faith being challenged and the evil one using it to um, cause him to have great distress in his life. He wrote a hymn called, Sometimes a Light Surprises. And this is the first verse of it. And it's in your sheets there. Sometimes a light surprises the child of God who sings. The light of one who rises with gentle healing wings. When comforts are declining, God grants the soul again a season of clear shining to cheer it after the rain. Indeed, God moves in a mysterious way, our blessing in disguise. At the times when he thinks he's most distant, he really is at work. And so, as we come to this text, the main idea is that God proves himself to be our blessing in ways that we wouldn't have expected. That's why the central point is stealthy he goes, keeping his promise to bless and to curse. So how do you know that God will keep his promises? Because God is faithful to the faithless, blessing Abram even when he embraces foolish notions, um, when he... uh, I don't have to look again. When he provokes fearful news and when he needs God's fearful forbearance. So, how do you know that God will keep his promises? Because God is faithful to the faithless, blessing Abraham, or Abram at this point, even when he embraces foolish notions. In other words, the application is don't do dumb things. But if you do, and when you do, I should say when, because I, I can provide a list of my own. When you do dumb things, come back to God. First of all, there are practical stressors here. We see in verse 10 that there's a famine in the land. Now, famine back then, serious news. Like, we don't understand famine unless the stores and the supply chains get closed down. Then we'll know it. But back then, when all you depend on is the ground and you can't run down to, uh, I forgot to say, super value to get that loaf of bread that you forgot to get at Walmart. Um, Famine back then was a threat not only to their lives, but to their livelihood as well. He had a lot of livestock. And so we have this famine-driven moment as a practical stressor in his life. And apparently God seemed silent to, to Abram. And, and, and this pattern for Abram reflects common occur- occurrences in the Christian life. You run into major issues that you have no control over. And you look back, look back in your life, look back in Abram's life, look at the end of verse 6 into verse 7. The Lord appears to Abram when the Canaanites were in the land, comforting him when he was probably afraid. And what does he do? He builds that altar and he worships the Lord. And then in verses 8 and 9 of chapter 12, Abram moves on, pitches his tent between Bethel and Ai, and Then, without even the Lord appearing to him, he builds an altar and he calls upon the name of the Lord because he's probably still scared. 
And that call on the name of the Lord is, to call, is a call of mercy. And then in verse 9, he journeys on and claims the whole rest of the southern, he's moving southward, claims the whole rest of the land by walking on it. That's basically what he's doing. Journeys on in faith and claims that whole land on faith. But then we see here Abram's waning confidence. The famine was in the land. God doesn't seem to be speaking. So he goes, what do I do? I mean, he's dedicated this whole new life to, to God. And what's his response to those major issues that we can't control? Much like us, he relies on his own practical wisdom. Many times we do the same. Egypt's, he goes down to Egypt, and this is kind of a pattern for Israel of finding help in Egypt, so much so that at times God has to rebuke his people because they want to depend on Egypt and not on God. And it becomes a snare to Abram's descendants. It's hard to throw rocks at Abram at this point, isn't it? It's a famine. You've got to eat, right? Not only that, we see in the, the end of uh, verse 10 that it's a, a severe famine. So you have practical stressors and God seems silent. And Abram's kind of ignorant, but he's still responsible for his choices before God, just like us. Ignorant, immature in his faith. This is brand new to him, remember that. And granted, Abram's in a worse place than we are. Abram didn't have a fully written Bible. Abram didn't have pastors or churches or sacraments to help encourage him along. But God accommodates to our circumstances. You have a Bible. You have pastors. What have you done to cultivate God's wisdom in your life? You see, God doesn't speak to us today like he spoke to Abram. Because the revelation is there. God said, look, here it is. It's in your hands. You live in this blessed land that you can get copies of this. There are people in China right now that are Christians worshiping underground and they would love to get a copy of God's word for their own. They have to rely on hearing it and memorizing it because of the persecution of that evil communist Chinese, part, Chinese communist party. So there's this fear-driven moment that Abram has. He doesn't have God's view. And upon approach to Egypt, look at the beginning of verse 11, when he was about to enter Egypt, think about it yourself. You know you're on the precipice of danger. There's lots to be afraid of. He's about, in his mind, about to lose it all. And there's no food back there. And I'm walking into danger over here. My people, my wife, me, my animals. Like you see that back in verse 5. He had a lot, a lot to lose there. So he starts thinking fast. And end of verse 11, he says to Sarai, his wife, I know that you're a beautiful woman, beautiful in appearance, beautiful in form. And putting it together now on the fly, he said to Abram, his wife. 
Keep that in mind. He's setting it up for her. This is his plan. It's practical wisdom. Got to be practical here, right? Always got to be practical. We don't have time for all that spiritual stuff. 66 books, folks, of godly wisdom. Sets it up for you. You're beautiful. And here's the dumb things. You might not feel that God is present. And you need God's wisdom, so how do you get it? How do you get it? You spend time in His Word. You go to the resources that you have. You ask your pastor questions. How is this? How does this work? Doesn't mean I'll have all the answers. Ask your elders. They don't have all the answers either. But together, as we look together at God's word, God's spirit comes in and you cultivate a heart of wisdom. As Moses said in Psalm 92, teach us to number our days, O Lord, that we may apply our hearts to wisdom. We don't have much time, folks, here on this earth. Apply your heart to wisdom. And so he comes up with a practical strategy over and against heavenly wisdom here. Not calling on the Lord. He's got to defend his family. We get it. I get it what he's doing here. I totally get it. Look at verse 12a. I mean, the beginning of verse 12. And when the Egyptians see you. Uh-oh. I got to fill in the blank. I'm nervous. I'm scared. And when we feel God is absent, our imagination gets rolling. And, and when Jesus died, the disciples scattered. That's what's and Abram here is scatterbrained, and we get scatterbrained. We don't know what to do. You see Matthew 26, 31. Then Jesus said to them, You will all fall away because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. Jesus knew it was coming. He told them it was coming, and then they did it. Now, what do you do at this moment? Well, here's what Abram did. End of verse 12. They will say, This is his wife. Then... They will kill me. Listen, you see his imagination just going wild here? Not that it's, that might have happened back in that day, okay? But they will let you live. Now, when you're in this moment, you should ask, is this really true? Is everything that I'm worrying about, is it really true at this moment? Is, is God faithful? Is that true? Is God faithful to take me through this life to save me by his saving grace in Christ Jesus and take me and lead me safely. That doesn't mean unaffected by this world. That doesn't mean that I can't have bad things happen to me. It doesn't mean that I won't even die or suffer greatly. But God will bring me safely home. And so he says in verse 13, he uses this to say, oh, excuse me, I jumped ahead. See, we need to sharpen our discernment and call upon the name of the Lord, crying out for mercy, asking based on his promises like James 1.5, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach and it will be given him. With prayer, meditating on his word, together with God's people, seeking your resources, you don't have to rely on a deceptive strategy. You have God's presence his spirit lives in you. He says in verse 13, say you are my sister. 
It's not a total lie. We'll find out later. I'm not going to give it all away now. It's not a total lie. Sort of a lie, but not a total lie. So he's left to himself alone, and, and this is what he says, that it may go well with me because of you, and that my life may be spared for your sake. And so, this is what happens when we take matters in our own hands. Right after the spies were sent into the land, and they all came back, and the people got scared, we can't go, and then all of a sudden, the Lord says, fine, I'm going to strike you down with pestilence. And then the, spy, and the people go, no, we're going to go fight, and that's what happens here. They, they, they go to fight, and then just pick it up, and, uh, and Moses tells them, the Lord will not be with you. Verse 44, Numbers 14. But they presumed to go up to the heights of the hill country, although neither the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord nor Moses departed out of the camp. Then the Amalekites and the Canaanites who lived in that hill country came down and defeated them and pursued them, even to Hormah. So we saw that Abram followed the Lord and was responding well early on until he wasn't. He's growing up. He's got to mature. Don't do dumb things. Foolishness. But if you do, return to the Lord. Because look at what the Lord promises in Isaiah 55, verses 6 and 7. Seek the Lord while he may be found. See, this is an open invitation. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. If you're his kid, he's always near. He lives in you. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. Even the shame of your sin, like Abram's here, should not keep you from coming back to the Lord. But Abram does more. He's in the line of the seed, but we clearly see he's not the seed of the woman. Someone more than Abram's needed. So God proves himself to be our blessing. He goes stealthily along, keeping his promise to bless and to curse. And we know that he keeps his promises because he's faithful to the faithless, blessing Abram even when he embraces foolish notions, which in turn provoke fearful news. Verse 14, it's verses 14 through 16. When you think the sky is falling, remember he can restore the years that the locust ate. See, Abram's proven right here. Even though God is watching over him, he's proven right at the beginning. Verse 14, beginning of verse 14. When Abram entered Egypt, now he's gone in. You can imagine if he was fearful as he was about to enter, how much more fearful as he goes into it. And the fear builds. Look at the end of verse 14. The Egyptians saw that the woman was very beautiful. Now he's proven right. Practical wisdom isn't all wrong. It's just that when we depend on it. Don't trust your own interpretations fully. Test them out. Get other counselors, other people involved. Look at God's word. Pray, because you might get more than you bargained for. And that's exactly what Abram got, because Abram walks by faith, by sight, not by faith here, and God sets, it, sets him up. Look at verse 15. And when the princess of Pharaoh saw her, see, Abram's been walking by sight. 
He doesn't have that eternal perspective. And wait, wait a minute. The princes of Egypt. Paul encourages us in 2 Corinthians 5, 6 and 7. So we are always of good courage. We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord, for we walk by faith, not by sight. That's trusting in the Lord and his word, living according to those things. Abram's been walking by sight. See, I, you might think like him, I thought we'd slip under the radar. Now what, I have, what have I done? Well, this is what you've done, Abram. Look at the end of verse 15. They praised her to Pharaoh. Now wait for it, as they say today. Wait for it. And the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. Abram can't be our covenant head. He sold out his wife's honor to save his own skin. Granted, he had a lot. He's thinking, he's trying to think on the fly here, not just his own skin, but he sold out his wife's honor. Now, I don't believe that her honor was violated in this situation because God got to work right away, okay? But nonetheless, he was willing to put his wife's honor on the line to save everything and to save his own skin. Look how Jesus is different, our true covenant head. Husband, Ephesians 5, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. He took the dishonor and look at what he did, so that she might be honored, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself with splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. So when you think the sky is falling, remember he can restore the years that the locusts ate. Now where does that come from? It's from this little, tiny, obscure prophet that we don't hear much preached from, Joel. In Joel 1, 4 through 5, God is judging Israel. And he's saying, he uses the metaphor of the locusts, although it could have been very re, a very real curse. Look at uh, Joel 1. What the cutting locust left, the swarming locust has eaten. What the swarming locust left, the hopping locust has eaten. And what the hopping locust left, the destroying locust has eaten. Awake, you drunkards, and weep and wail, all you drinkers of wine, because of the sweet wine for it is cut off from your mouth. Now, that's, there's a whole other list of sins. That's just one representative sin that his people were engaged in. And God's not sitting by idly. God's people had disobeyed and even hardened their hearts. And like Abram, Abram did it in a small way. But any kind of blessing that comes is up to God and his graciousness and his kindness. Look at what God did here for his people. Joel 2, 25-27. I will restore to you the years that the swarming locust has eaten, the hopper, the destroyer, and the cutter, my great army which I sent among you. You shall eat in plenty and be satisfied and praise the name of the Lord your God who has dealt wondrously with you. And my people shall never again be put to shame. You shall know that I am in the midst of Israel. He is Emmanuel, God with us. And that I am the Lord your God, and there is none else. And my people shall never again, he repeats this, never again be put to shame. That's what God's heart is for you. 
And we see the first signs of God doing this for Abram in verse 16. Because Abram's got some anxious plunder here, right? Um, and for her sake, verse 16, he dealt well with Abram. Have you ever received a gift and you thought it might come with strings attached and you're kind of nervous about receiving it? That's where Abram is. Kind of a nervous thank you. Not sure what's going to happen here. And then Abram gets all these riches. Nervously. Sheep and oxen, male donkeys, male servants, female servants, female donkeys, and camels. Camels were not... Uh, they were... They were just beginning to be domesticated and bred for that at this time. So to have a camel was a rarity, as a beast of burden was a rarity at this time. So Pharaoh made Abram rich. God proves himself to be our blessing. Stealthy he goes, keeping his promise to bless and to curse. And we know he's faithful to the faithless. He keeps his promises because even when Abram embraces foolishness, which promotes fearful news, and now needs him, we see the compassion of our God. First of all, he comes to Abram and gives him what he needs with his fearful forbearance. See, God makes a plan, and that's what makes God patient. He's working this all out. He can even redeem the sin in your life, like the locusts that the, 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 uh, the years that the locusts ate away. God is the God who speaks things into existence and he can restore things into your life according to his will and his kindness. And so we have Abram's ignorance over God's powerful protection in verse 17. I think Abram had a sleepless night. His wife's over there in Pharaoh's house as Pharaoh's wife. But God had a very active night. But the Lord afflicted Pharaoh and his house. Got the stealthy God. We think he's not there. We don't know what he's doing, so we're all sleepless and all bound up inside. And what's God doing? He's defending Abram. How does Christ, from Westminster Shorter Catechism, question 26, how doth Christ execute the office of a king? Christ executed the office of a king in subduing us to himself, in ruling and defending us, and in restraining and conquering all his and our enemies? That's one of my favorite questions in the catechism. It just makes me want to stand up and just cheer. And Abram, he is sold out. He sold out his wife, wife's honor to Pharaoh. And yet God, what does he do? God gives a loving rescue with a... Uh, and so he afflicted Pharaoh and his house with great plagues. And wait for it, because Sarai, Abram's wife. He went off on his own, sold out her honor. But God is living up to his word, blessing him because of the covenant he made with him. Look at verse 3 of chapter 12. He's blessing Abram and he's cursing Pharaoh. Him who dishonors you, I will curse. Stealthy he goes, keeping his promise to bless and to curse. And so Abram's got this fearful silence because he gets a summons from Pharaoh. But God's got this far, far-sighted plan. 
verses 18 through 20. First, Pharaoh calls to Abram. There's the summons. You can imagine. Shaking in boots. And he gives a series of questions that are not meant to be answered. They're meant to have impact. They're verbal punches. What have you done for me? Why did you not tell me this was your wife? Why did you say she's my sister? So that I took her for my wife. Now then, here's your wife. Take her and go. It's got fearful anger there. Everything Abram predicted and even more has come true here. Now take her and go. Can you imagine? Is he going to shoot me in the back when I leave? That's what I'd be thinking. Is he going to have a bunch of people out there to ambush me when I leave? But Abram has a narrow escape because of God's protective judgment. Pharaoh gave men orders concerning him, and they sent him away with his wife and all that he had. Abram, in faithlessness, put his wife Sarai's honor on the line. Definitely cannot be that seed that we're looking for. He's still the covenant head for this time, though. He's a foolish sinner, unable to control the evil of others. Pharaoh, driven by lust, he's the kind of guy that takes whatever he wants. Yet God judged Pharaoh. Abram deceived. Abram's a fool. This is not God telling us, go out, go out there and be a fool and deceive everybody. That's not what the point of this lesson. But nonetheless, it's showing God's faithfulness. Because God's patience comes from a very far, far distant plan that he's working out. So let's look at this. In conclusion, let's think about the first readers here. The people who just came out of Egypt with Moses. That's who's reading this. Hmm. Abram came out of Egypt due to famine. Jacob slash Israel, renamed Israel, brought his family to Egypt due to famine and came out eventually. Sarai, the woman who eventually gives birth to the offspring of the woman, she represents the people of Israel and is enslaved in Pharaoh's house. We were enslaved in Egypt. Abram had a sleepless night wondering what to do. Where was God? Moses had to flee to the wilderness for 40 years. God had compassion and protected and rescued Sarai. God had compassion and re rescued and protected us. Abram was rescued and escaped with all the plunder Pharaoh gave him. Israel was rescued and escaped with all the plunder that the Egyptians gave them. Look at Exodus 12, 35-36. The people of Israel had also done as Moses told them, for they asked the Egyptians for silver and gold jewelry and for clothing. And the Lord had given the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians so that they, uh, they let them have what they asked. Thus they plundered the Egyptians. God is more intensely, that was a more intensely evil Pharaoh that they were under, and God more intensely blessed them with gifts. So this is how God is faithful. He proves himself, himself to be our blessing. Stealthy he goes, keeping his promise to bless and curse. How do you know God will keep his promises? Because God is faithful to the faithless. When Abram's foolish and his foolishness gets him into more trouble than he bargained for, Abram still had to deal with the consequences of his sin. 
But nonetheless, God got them through, got them out of Egypt, got these people out of Egypt that are now reading this, out of the, which represents darkness, slavery to that darkness, idolatry, and set free. God's people are just like that no matter what age they live in. Hosea later reflected, as God told him, when Israel was a child, this is God speaking through Hosea, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. He uses that phrase, my son, as Israel. That's the people of God. But even better than that, look at what Matthew says in Matthew 2. Now, when they had departed, this is um, the, the three kings, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Rise, take the child and his mother, and flee to Egypt, and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt I called my son. The people of God are the son of God, but they can't, they can't do it. So God sends his son. He goes into Egypt representing his people, but not sinning like them. And he comes out. He comes out of Egypt that it guarantees that that deliverance from Egypt is going to be secured by him. God blesses and he curses, and Jesus became a curse for us. As Paul said in Galatians 3, that we might have the blessing of Abraham, God's presence in our lives by his Holy Spirit. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we praise you for your faithfulness. We bless you for your name, for you are true to your word. You indeed are our blessing in disguise, and you surprise us with your faithfulness. We thank you that you sent Jesus to represent us, humiliating himself to go into the bondage of a cross and then gain victory over sin and death by his resurrection. We thank you for his reign over us as our King and Lord, that he defends us and rescues us from all his and our enemies and is with us in the indwelling of your spirit. In his name we pray, amen.